0: Drugs rock and roll aliens and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself visit osbornmediahouse.com to get special access to Come to, on. What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet? Oh. <laughs> This episode of Punk Rock HR is sponsored by the Shift Career Summit on June 17th. We're bringing together some of the biggest names in the world of work to help you take control of your career. The event is completely free and you can register today at shiftdigitalcareers.com. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Ruderman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author, Julie Lithcott-Hames. She's the author of a new book called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Now this is a book about adulting, but it's also a book about identity and character and integrity and showing up and living a complete, authentic, and interesting life, no matter how old you are. I know you're going to love this conversation with Julie, and she's also going to be the opening speaker for the SHIFT Career Conference that I'm hosting with my dear friend, Mary Ellen Slater. And if you're interested in that conference, you can head on over to shiftdigitalcareers.com. So if you're interested in a conversation with Julie about identity, about being an adult, about living a great life, well, I know you're going to enjoy this discussion we have on Punk Rock HR. Hey, Julie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Laurie, thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you here. And before we get started, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you're all about?
1: I am an author. I care deeply about humans. My work is about helping humans on their path, removing obstacles from their path, whether those obstacles are external or within them. I'm just rooting for all of us to make it in this one wild and precious life.
0: Well, that's really beautiful. You know, I'm more of a cynic and I try to avoid people. So why do you do what you
1: do? I think I've been avoided in life. I have Been marginalized on the basis of my skin color. I was born to people who transgressed the rules of society by daring to fall in love. My existence was considered illegal, immoral. And I think when you come into a life that implicitly or explicitly violates the rules, you learn a lot about what it takes to matter to others. So I think I summon a deep empathy for humans from all walks of life. And I take my own lived experience and just channel that into rooting for others.
0: Well, you root for others across the generations. And I wonder if you have an affinity for young people, older people, because you've written for multiple audiences. So what do you feel about that? What do you think about all those different generations?
1: You know, my critique of the older generations is really, I do root for all humans, but my rooting is particularly for those of us still forming ourselves, still forging that sense of here's who I am. Here's why I'm on the planet. Here's what I'm good at here's what i love and i hope that those conversations within the self have happened by the time someone is 50, 60, 70. So when it comes to the older generations to whom for example the first book was written, The Harm of Overparenting book, i am critiquing our neuroses that make us overparent our kids or make us constrain their path or make us overhelp them or shape them so that we can feel better about ourselves.
0: So tell us about your new book and more importantly why you felt like now is the time to write it.
1: I was asked to write it by my publisher. The first book on the harm of helicopter parenting did very well. They wanted a sequel. I signed a contract. We didn't really know what a sequel meant, meaning what would the content of a sequel to the first book be? They rejected my first three attempts to write that thing. I finally found my way in after three years by summoning a voice that is vulnerable that I think I feared I was supposed to be an expert on adulting. And I thought, who is an expert on adulting? No one's an expert. We either all are or none of us is. It's just a phase of life if you survive childhood, you're an adult. But I finally figured out, no, you don't have to be that wise sage on the hill, just be you. Just shine a warm light back on these younger folks who are struggling, just based on what you've learned, based on your compassion, based on the stories you can tell of your own struggles and embarrassing, shameful moments. Let those be lessons you can offer to younger people. And once I figured out that that was the voice, then the book had velocity. But then the pandemic hit and that became its own challenge, which then got to be very meta because I'm writing about how we persist through challenge as a manner of adulting. And here we are in a pandemic. And now here it is. Thank goodness.
0: Well, tell us a little bit more about the book. It's called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And I would love to know what some of the central points are
1: the book is a genre mashup. It is self-help. You will get self-help tips, but humans learn and have historically over the millennia learned through the storytelling of other humans. So this book is shaped around story, my stories, but also the stories of close to three dozen other humans from all walks of life, the most racially, genderly diverse group of people, diverse in terms of sexual orientation, lived experience, mental health situation, degree of education, socioeconomic status, religion, etc. Etc. I've got humans from all walks of life telling their stories so readers see the rich complexity of the human experience told through the rich diversity of myriad voices. I'm hoping that readers see, okay, I've just read a story that doesn't sound like it's a story that I have lived and yet I resonate so much with its core principles. So that's one huge piece of this book that we are different and yet we have so much in common. Adulting is simply being in charge of yourself, no longer being a dog on a leash, no longer being handheld by someone else. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's nice when someone handles life for you, but is it really nice when you're 22 and 25 and 29 and 33 for your parent to be making your decisions and solving your problems? No, that actually leads to a psychological malaise. You don't want that. You do want to be in charge. You do want to learn to care for your body and your mind and your belongings, to take care of your obligations, to find work, to find love. That's what adulting is. And this book is helping people get unstuck from the things that may be sticking them and rooting for them to just make their way.
0: Well, the book is definitely grounded in this definition of adulting. And I'm really thinking now about chapter two, where you talk about fending for yourself. So a lot of people would say, well, you know, I know people who need that, or I never needed that. So why would other people need it? So can you talk about this concept of fending for yourself? And what do young adults today really need to learn?
1: Anyone saying I never need that is really saying nobody had to teach me to fend. We all do have to fend unless you're wealthy you do not have to fend your hired staff is doing the fending for you young adults need to learn to make themselves food procure a shelter keep track of their belongings keep track of their deadlines and obligations and responsibilities make their way transport their bodies somehow to the work they will do to the various things in life that matter to them they need to learn how to care about others needs alongside their own they need to learn how to talk to strangers because strangers often stand in between the young adult and what the young adult seeks they have have to be respectful. They have to know how to advocate for themselves. These are sort of the fundamentals along with make doctor's appointments, be able to schedule things because adulting is really so much more than just taking care of business. But taking care of business slash fending is certainly step number one.
0: Well, and I think that's the step that gets a lot of attention, especially in an older generation's perspective. You know, when I do hear a critique of that, it's almost as if older people think they were born learning how to make a doctor's appointment or learning how to get their oil changed. And I just wonder, or what it is about empathy or a lack of perspective that happens as we age that we forget that these things don't come naturally to us.
1: Right. These things are learned and the critique lands at the feet of the older generation that failed to teach our young people. If a kid has emerged from high school and doesn't know how to change a tire, that's on parents for not saying, you got a driver's license, you got to learn how to change a tire, and I'm going to stand here and teach you and make sure you know how. Like, What happened? We've done so much of the handling of the stuff of Life for our kids out of kindness, out of love. Turns out we've undermined their ability to fend, and those chickens are coming home to roost. And I do not blame the younger generation for that. It's our fault.
0: You know, Julie, in the book, you explore perfectionism and effort versus output. And I'm thinking about chapter three now. And I don't mean to sound like Seinfeld, but what's the deal with this relentless pursuit of perfection these days? Because I kind of believe that effort has always mattered. And yet we really hyper focus on perfectionism. So can you talk to me about the tension with perfectionism? Effort and output.
1: I don't know where the tendency comes from. I'm glad you're old school and valuing effort all along. Perfectionism comes out of a deep psychological insecurity, a need to control, a need to be in charge, a need to make things perfect, to feel safe, to feel okay. So perfection is sort of the cloak anxiety wears. If I'm perfect, then I'll be fine. The healthier mindset is, nope, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. I'm not going to hold myself to that standard every single moment of every single day all the time. Instead, I'm going to take a beginner's mindset. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to take a mindset of I'm here to learn and grow. That way, everything is an opportunity instead of an obligation. Everything is an opportunity to develop my skills and to get more capable, more strong, rather than an opportunity to fail at being perfect. In that chapter, I say life's beautiful F words, fumbling, flailing, floundering, falling, feedback. These are things we fear, but we must embrace them. They are life's biggest teachers, and the better we can get at dealing with the fact that those things happen and learning from them, the stronger and more capable, more relieved, relaxed, and easier to be around we'll be.
0: The future of work is here, and boy, it's full of buzzwords for job seekers. Gig economy, micro-learning, the fourth industrial revolution. What does it even mean? That's what I want to know. That's why my friend Mary Ellen Slater and I are holding the Shift Career Summit on June 17th. We're bringing together some of the biggest names in the world of work, such as Lindsay Pollack, Minda Hartz, Neil Irwin, and so many other great thinkers who are helping people like you take control of your career this isn't another boring webinar when we put together the lineup of the all-stars who are going to help you work at the intersection of purpose and meaning mary ellen and i had one rule no scrubs the shift career summit is completely free and you can register today at shiftdigitalcareers.com that's shiftdigitalcareers.com and i'll look forward to seeing you on june 17th So I'm thinking as you talk about the F words, you talk about fending for yourself. We've talked about perfectionism. What we're really having is a discussion that's rooted in the concept of character. So talk to me about character and why it was so important to write about that in this book.
1: I think of the pillars of adulting as being agency, I can, resilience, I can cope, character, I know that there's more than me in the world. And if you had to pair away two of those and only have one, I think character is what carries us forward. How we interact with our fellow humans, because we are a social species, our good character is like a red carpet that we can travel down and it'll open doors for us. So it's beautiful because it doesn't require you spending any money on it. course or a college degree. You don't have to be wealthy. Character is a decision you make. How to be with humans is entirely under your control in a world that is chaotic and throws us all kinds of curveballs. Your character is something you can always be in charge of and strengthen and burnish.
0: I also think that character is something that you can turn around there are difficult moments in life where it's hard once you go down a path to write that shit but with character you always have an opportunity to do the right thing and I was just so moved by that discussion in the book like that really stuck out to me so thank you for writing about that so you do have a chapter that I also loved about getting out of neutral and again gender agnostic actually like it could be read by anybody of any age really good tips so can you talk to us about some of the big ideas about getting out of neutral and getting back into the game
1: the book is in response to millennials saying, I don't want to adult. I don't know how to adult. Adulting is scary. So in chapter six, which I call the hinge of the book, I'm trying to address, okay, what's in your way? If adulting is the natural stage of life, once you finish childhood, if prior generations delighted in, thank goodness, I'm no longer a child anymore. Why are you all stuck? What have we done? What have we set in motion? What are the new norms in place such that you're stuck at the precipice of something that it should be a natural progression? So that chapter deeply examines what's holding kids back. That's where we get into some of the childhood chickens coming home to roost. The way in which you grew up might be impeding your ability to move forward into adulthood. So we take on parent-child dynamics. We take on the expectations of others that might be in your head, crowding out your own sense of what you want to do. One of the things I address head on is the extent to which so many young people hear, keep your options open, which becomes the paradox of choice. And usually a grown-up says to a kid, keep your options open when they don't like the option you're about. To opt for. Oh, I think I'll major in this. Oh, no, keep your options open. Oh, I think I'll take this job. No, keep your options open. Well, that becomes paralyzing and produces anxiety. So I have a bias toward action, as anyone in Silicon Valley does. Take any door, see what happens, learn from it, evaluate, keep going.
0: You know, as I was reading the book, I thought back to a time when I was back in college and I had a professor who was a baby boomer tell me, a Gen Xer, that nobody under the age of 40 has a story to tell. It's just something that kind of popped in my head as I was flipping through the book. And what do you think about that? Because at the time I was like, this guy's an idiot. And now I'm like, well, you do live a life by the time you're 40 and you have things to say. But can I get your reaction to that?
1: Yeah, my reaction is, okay, boomer. Number one, I believe that's what people say. Number two, boomers are known and have been known since they were young for being arrogant as hell and self absorbed. It makes perfect sense that a boomer would say that. I totally countermand that in this book. I've got stories of young people whose lived experience and their ability to articulate it and lessons learned will blow your mind. So I just think it's bullshit. I will say that perhaps giving them the benefit of the doubt, what was embedded in that quip was the sense that it does take time to know oneself and you cannot really tell a story until you've lived long enough to have some distance from the choices you've made, the problems you've solved, and so on. So there is a bit of a mulling of one's story over time, the way that we make a sauce by reducing all the ingredients down. So I think maybe that's where your professor was going. But wow, it was very arrogantly phrased.
0: Boy, you are generous and benevolent. And I appreciate that about you. But I like the answer that he's a dick, which is what I was thinking in my head for the past 25 years. So yeah, there you go. Well, there's so much in this book that really appeals to me, as the Gen Xer that we've talked about, but you write about making things better, but you also walk the talk by making a commitment to inclusion. This book was served up with a statement about that. So can you talk about that decision as an individual, as an author, as just a human being? What is that all about and why did you do it?
1: I'm a 53-year-old biracial Black woman, I'm bisexual, I identify as queer, I'm in a marriage to a cisgendered man who is the best thing that ever happened to me. So I've got a complex set of identities personally. I know what it is like to read books that don't contemplate my existence. I'm tired of whiteness being unnamed on the page by fiction and nonfiction writers alike. Too often, you open a book, you open a magazine article, and we get characters. Character A, character B, character C, character D, whose brown skin glistened in the sun. That's the first mention of skin tone. We're all meant to assume that character A, B, and C are something. We don't even need to mention it because it's normal. What is that? whiteness. I'm not here for that. I'm tired of that. I think America, as it continues to be more and more diverse, Americans are tired of that. And so I have tried to demonstrate in these pages that we must not do that. There's no identity that is the norm to which the rest of us become the other. I'm just not here for that. And so I am naming identities on these pages. Whiteness does not silently lurk. It is named. And it's part of my practice as an author to call that out where I see it. It is part of my practice practice as an author to make sure my writing is as inherently respectful of all humans as possible. So I've made choices in my narrative, both how I write and then whom I include. And I've already referred to the stories that are in there. I'm hoping that every reader has cause to say, she had me in mind when she wrote this sentence or this paragraph or this page or this chapter.
0: Really great stuff. So finally, I wonder if you can talk about the news that's happening today. You know, it can be a little tiresome. How do we keep going?
1: Yeah, just the this week last week has been rough on us Black folks and parents of brown children and it's a pandemic and we have systemic inequality and we have a climate that is clapping back and those are just four really large forces at work that can make life feel impossibly hard and wearying. We keep going, I think, by summoning the reminder that our ancestors went through far worse, that we come come from people, all of us, come from people who survived long enough to give us life. And I think that's freaking amazing. I summon the strength of my ancestors, what they went through, what they endured, how they persisted. I recognize that in the 21st century, things are so much better, easier because of how evolved we have become. So I know we can, I also know that hardship strengthens us. So as I talk with young people about making their way into adulthood post pandemic, it's guess what? Yeah. This has sucked and you have grown. So be mindful about the ways in which you have endured and grown during this hard time. Take those lessons forward. Pair away the bullshit that you know doesn't matter to you. If anything, hardship clarifies what does matter, then the lessons we take out of it are, okay, this is the work I will do because now I know how precious life is. This is the person I will be in relationship with because I have learned that commitment to another human matters. Or I need to extricate myself from this friendship because it is not serving me in a healthy way anymore we have clarity and velocity coming out of this difficult year. So as hard as it's been, it's going to serve us in being more intentional and more grounded and more grateful and more resilient in the months and years to come.
0: Julie, it's been a real pleasure to host you on Punk Rock HR. So if anybody's interested in your book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, what's the best way for them to get it and find it?
1: You can get it wherever books are sold in all formats. If you like my voice, get the audiobook. My mother, who's British, makes a cameo in her British Yorkshire accent in the audiobook and only the audiobook. It's available in e-formats. I'd like you to support your local independent bookstore. I'd like you to support a Black owned bookstore. Get it wherever you like to get books. My website julielifcotthames.com is where you can learn more about me and my social handles jlifcotthames wherever you might be. I'm probably there except for TikTok, maybe, but you know, not yet
0: ah, oh, who's got the energy for tiktok come on now at least that's my bias against it so well julie it was a real pleasure to have you we'll include all of that in the show notes and thanks for being a guest on punk rock hr
1: i've loved being with you i'm more of a hip-hop listener but thanks to you i'm inclined now to check out some punk rock
0: hey everybody i hope you enjoyed this episode of punk rock hr as always, the show notes are where it's at for information, links, resources, and you can find them all at laurirudeman.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget this episode of Punk Rock HR was sponsored by the Shift Career Summit. That's right. Happening on June 17th, it is the place to go to hear from all the experts, no scrubs, to help you take control of your career. Head on over to shiftdigitalcareers.com for more information. That's Shift Digital Careers. Dot .com and thanks again for listening to this episode of Punk Rock HR we'll see you next time